0: Hey, this is Dr. Alan Christensen. Today we'll be mapping iodine part two on the 15-minute matrix.
1: Welcome to the 15 Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, Functional Medicine Nutritionist and your host. The 15 Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons, which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the Functional Matrix. The Functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in our clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking once again with my friend, Dr. Alan Christensen. Dr. Christensen is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care. He is the New York Times bestselling author whose recent titles include the Thyroid Reset Diet and the Metabolism Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen has been featured on countless media appearances, including Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He is the founding president behind the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians in the American College of Thyroidology. And Dr. Christensen is a repeat guest on the 15-Minute Matrix. Please go back to listen to our initial conversation on iodine. That was episode number 82. And we also mapped metabolism which was episode number 64, but this new information on iodine and the diet couldn't be missed. So let's get started. Dr. Christensen, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm so excited to have you here.
0: Hey, Andrea. Glad to be with you here. Thanks for having me.
1: We are talking about this new work that you have that really speaks to us about reversing thyroid disease, and iodine is a big player here. Is that correct?
0: That's that's exactly correct, yes.
1: So tell us a little bit more about these findings between iodine and thyroid health.
0: Well, we've known forever that too little iodine is bad for the thyroid and, and way too much can be toxic for the body in general and also bad for the thyroid. In the last few years, there's been a lot of new research coming out showing that really those prone to thyroid disease, the core issue is that they have a narrower range of tolerance to iodine, that they can more easily have it become excessive than it could for someone else. And then also that thyroid disease can reverse when they get a chance to eliminate the extra iodine from their thyroid.
1: That's so fascinating. So what you're saying, and I know we mapped iodine previously on the podcast, and we'll link to that episode in the show notes, but what you're saying is that there could be an individualized response to iodine? Mm -hmm.
0: So the World Health Organization has shown just strong trends between the intake of iodine in nations and their overall rate of thyroid disease. And some people are prone to thyroid disease, some are not, but that's the main reason why they're different is just that. And on the low end, it doesn't seem there's a lot of variation. There's not really people that require 10 or 20 times or even 50% more iodine for nutritional requirements. But on the upper end, that's where the variation really shows out. There's those that can tolerate occasional bolus doses or chronic doses that are somewhat higher, but many cannot.
1: And is this related to exposure? I know you often talk about how the nutrient works differently than we might think of other nutrients. Is it genetic? Is it ancestral? Why is it that people can't tolerate it?
0: Well, the thought is that, yeah, there's likely some ancestral difference. And this gets a little theoretical, but the idea is that we think that some human variants evolved in areas that were more coastal and that a lot of their foods were straight from the ocean. A lot mm. of the soils are more iodine-rich. And they, had, they, they really didn't have iodine deficiency as a common state they had to adapt to, but they did occasionally have bolus doses of iodine that were much more than they needed in the short term. So they had some level of iodine resistance. And there was other variants that were more inland, to where they, they were often operating on a smaller iodine budget, so to speak. So they had to be really good at doing well with tiny amounts of iodine and really keeping every speck and concentrating and holding on to it. However, that variation likely had more vulnerability to these bolus doses
1: so this has to do with where people lived and maybe even something that impacted the body over generations. You often also talk about how iodine is more difficult to control in our food sources. Do I have that right?
0: It is. It is true. And we've seen some pretty dramatic changes since like the 90s to the 2010s. A lot of the common food sources of iodine, their content has gone up by two to threefold.
1: When we're talking about this, Dr. C, we're looking at the amount of iodine that we get in the body and who does well with more or less, but where is it concentrated in the body? It is a little bit different than other nutrients and how we physiologically utilize it. Isn't that correct?
0: It is. So we're getting it from our our diet. We also breathe it in from the air, believe it or not. And we also get some topically. So cosmetics, a lot of them have it. We can talk more about that. But we concentrate it in areas that have the NIS, the sodium iodide symporter. And the the gut lining has the first expression of that. And there's a little variation of its activity based upon our physiologic requirements. Not as much of a range, but we will take it in better when we need it. And we'll try to block it when we don't. But there's only so much variation that has. So the most active place that we concentrate is within the thyroid gland itself. And we pull it within the gland into the thyroid follicles. And the general idea is that iodine, to be precise, is in the state of iodide when it comes in from the diet, or it crosses the skin or the gut lining. And it's only when we concentrate it that it can convert to iodine hmm. and become chemically active. So there's there's little bits of NIS in many parts of the body that are not thought to be relevant. They're often there for just embryologic reasons. You know, we've got some cell types that came from other cell types that were similar. Uh, The last part where it's relevant though is in breast tissue. This is fascinating and this is not what we've often thought. So there's a range of NIS expression between non-lactating healthy breast tissue, uh, lactating breast tissue, uh, fibroadenomatous breast disease, and then hormonally sensitive breast carcinomas. So the highest end is the most NIS expression and the lowest end is the least. So non-lactating women don't have active NIS in their breast tissue. They're not concentrating iodine. Uh, When they're lactating, they do because you need some in the milk. Fibroadenomatous breast disease, part of the mechanism seems to be a defect of NIS. So as there's more iodine concentrated, there's also more sodium brought in and more fluid retention within the cells. And then finally, breast cancer. And this is interesting because some have argued that iodine is protective against breast cancer. Uh, The rationale for that has been just the observation about Japanese women having lower rates of breast cancer. But now there have been studies looking at Japanese women that have breast cancer. And it turns out that when you partition them based upon their iodine excretion, those that have the most iodine excretion have breast cancer. And the differences are quite clear. This has shown up in other populations as well. There's even been talk about using iodine excretion as a marker for breast cancer risk and even using iodine as a carrier for breast cancer treatments.
1: Dr. C, in your new book, you actually outline the difference in time from the number of countries or nations where there was iodine deficiency and the number of nations where there's iodine oversufficiency. Can you talk a little bit more into those findings and what that tells us?
0: Yeah, as a generalization, the the late 80s, the early 90s, up into the present, there's been an unprecedented increase of all types of thyroid disease. That's autoimmune, it's thyroid cancer, it's possibly non-autoimmune, and it largely parallels this change in iodine status globally. So 91, there was 112 nations that were categorized by the World Health Organization as severely iodine deficient and at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine lack. At that point, there were no nations that as a whole were averaging states of iodine excess. By the time we get to 2014, the nations that were iodine deficient and you know it was a, it was a catastrophe you know so those were nations in which, Many babies were born with uh, cretinism, with congenital Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism, and they missed irreparable milestones of cognitive development because of that. So it was a huge thing that justified the efforts put against it. So it was solved. And by 2014, that number was brought down to zero. So we now have no nations that are categorized as severely iodine deficient. However, we now have 52 nations categorized as at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess.
1: Iodine and the thyroid. I know that you have a real passion for working with those of us who have thyroid diseases of all sorts. How does iodine interact with the thyroid or slow its function in ways that we should be considering for our clients and patients as we move forward?
0: Yeah, so n- nutritionally, the thyroid, as we said, it concentrates it, it pulls it inside of it, and it converts it iodide to iodine. And it does that so we can pair it onto the molecule thyroglobulin. And that's how thyroid hormones are made. Right. Now, thyroglobulin as a molecule has these tyrosol sites, and that's where iodine should go. I almost think of it like, like coat hangers. Mm. There's about 11 tyrosol residues per average thyroglobulin molecule. However, if you got a family gathering, a lot of coats might end up on the couch or you know on the bed or wherever. Right. So, so a molecule of thyroglobulin can actually end up getting a 60 or more iodine atoms attached to it, and at that point, when there's more than that 11, every extra one is a source of free radicals. Mm. Iodine is like like bleach. You know, it's like a chlorine. It's, it's a halide, and so it's generating these free radicals, and it can cause these thyroid proteins to appear to be foreign and it can cause them to damage the thyroid. So another mechanism is that in a state of iodine excess, the thyroid stops concentrating it, trying to slow itself so it won't make dangerously high amounts of hormone. So so two things happen. Extra iodine slows the thyroid directly and that can cause initial or chronic hypothyroidism. But then over longer periods of time, that extra iodine within the follicles can make the thyroid proteins appear foreign or antigenic. And that appears to be the main mechanism behind thyroid autoimmunity.
1: And we all want to help our clients and patients reverse their thyroid disease. We know that thyroid dysfunction can lead to a number of signs and symptoms that can be debilitating for our patients. How do we use this information about iodine to help reverse thyroid disease?
0: Well, that's the that's the really exciting part. You know, short of that, it would be true but useless to say, here's why it went wrong, but the horse is out of the barn. Right. So we now know the thyroid is way more resilient than we thought. There, there have been a couple of large interventional trials in which they've taken people that have had thyroid disease for some time. The average has been about four years per the study. And they've had pretty marked hypothyroidism. You know, TSA scores per study averaging in the 10 to 20 range. And the sole intervention they've done has been to put people on a specifically a low iodine regime. And over the course of eight to twelve weeks per the study, uh, around seventy percent of people regain normal thyroid function. Hmm. You know they're they're not given medication. they They have completely normal thyroid function again on their own. And they've had control groups where similar cohorts, were tracked but not put on a special diet, and they didn't have these same changes occur.
1: And this leads us to some of those invisible sources of iodine that you hinted out earlier, talking a little bit about the cosmetics. What are some of these other invisible sources that might be leading us to that iodine overwhelm?
0: Yeah, so we can get that from supplements quite commonly. Uh, There are some medications that offer a lot in the diet. The biggest sources will be processed grain products. Commercial breads, doughs, biscuits, rolls, dairy products, uh, seafood, sea vegetables, egg yolks, and salt. And then we've got the topical things to think about, yeah, you know, skin, skin products.
1: When you say supplements, do you mean supplements where, if we actually look at the label, we can see iodine, or is there some extra hidden measure there?
0: Well, so funny thing. So thyroid support supplements. This is a brief aside related to your question. Uh, they, some of them are labeled to have thyroid glandular substances, and many of those have active thyroid hormone. They've shown that thyroid support products that don't list thyroid glandulars, 80% still have hidden thyroid hormone, which does contain iodine. So if there are any thyroid support products that don't already list iodine, they may still have that because they probably have active thyroid hormone. So there's that. But then the other big issue is that, yes, the labeled content not only is that there, but there's probably a lot more than that present. One big study took 120 products and analyzed a, a sample of them. And this was multivitamins, some prescription, some over-the-counter. And not one product was within 5% of its labeled iodine content when analyzed. Many had two to three times their content. So yes, they can. there can be a lot more than you would think in supplements.
1: And salt, I'd like to do an entire podcast on salt, maybe more than one, but (laughs) is there actually something we should be considering with salt so that we're getting a lower iodine content, but we can get some of the benefits, both taste-wise and physiologically from our salt?
0: I've thought about that a lot. So the physiologic benefits, you know, we need some sodium chloride, and then people talk about salt as being a source of other minerals, and it is. So when you look at the assays of sea salt, it's got pretty much all the minerals on planet Earth. Uh, Magnesium is about 3%. That can translate into about 50 milligrams per day, which is relevant. Then one of the next most common is going to be calcium in sea salt. And a full day source of salt might yield half a milligram of calcium. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So no longer physiologically relevant. And it's it's downhill from there. When we talk about (laughs) potassium, it's a tiny fraction of a milligram and Yeah, so there's really nothing that's there besides some magnesium, which is not nothing. But there are some sea salts that are low in iodine, which is good. As far as taste purposes go, I've spent a lot of time geeking out about salt, too. And pretty much all the chefs argue that salt with iodine don't taste as good. Hmm. They have some bitter taste element to them. So chefs use kosher salts. And there's there's I'm not tied to any of these companies, but there's a brand called Diamond Kosher Salt which has no no other additives, and they also argue that there's a the physical shape of it, like little diamonds, makes it work better for how it sticks onto things and holds onto things. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so that's that's one that I love, and then the other one that I love is Malden's Sea Salt. It's a low iodine sea salt. It's been assayed pretty consistently, and that's a it's a finishing salt. So it's like these little flecks, almost like Mm, almost like scales. Like mm. imagine like smaller, like fish scales, but smaller and even thinner. And so you make a dish, and you've already put your your kosher salt in as you're cooking, and you sprinkle some of this on before you serve it. And it's there's really not that much. There's not that much there. There's not that much sodium, but it's it's so thin that. You, you crunch it and you get this these dramatic little taste pops of it, and it it's so good
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna have to try this i have it written down and dr c <laughs> i know there's so much i want to talk to you about and i definitely want to lead people to the show notes make sure they get your new book but let's get into quickly some of the tactics i almost think of what you're doing here as the kind of healing diet that we might see where we are reducing things like salicylates or copper, or where we have to think about other um, agents in the body to help the body to come into its most healing potential. And you're looking at that, I believe, in terms of iodine and iodine reducing diet. Did I capture that right? Mm -hmm. You did. Yeah, that's
0: quite accurate. So there's a chronic load of iodine within the thyroid, and it can't get rid of that quickly. It only eliminates iodine by making thyroid hormone. So if it's doing that slowly, or if someone's on medication, there's just not much coming out. And people can be in a state when, if they're above 200 micrograms per day, they can be in a state at where the amount coming in is more than what their thyroid can eliminate.
1: I know in the last podcast, we talked about iodine testing. Do you have any new thoughts as everybody's listening here and thinking, oh my gosh, how do I know if my patient (laughs) has too much iodine and wants that clear measure? What is your technique for taking a look at those realities within any one body?
0: Yeah, that has evolved a little bit. Uh, the short version is, as I said before, there's almost no tests that are helpful. Uh, the studies that I mentioned in which the diet reversed thyroid disease, some of the studies, they did measure patients' iodine beforehand. And what they saw was that it was not predictive of who would or who would not respond. So yeah, it seems like a logical question to say, let me see if I'm getting too much. If I am, I'll do this diet. But from the studies, that didn't really predict who it would help and who it would not help. What they did see, though, is that of those who did not respond, there was a certain number that still had very high levels of iodine in their urine. And in those cases, the thought was, you got to play to win, and they weren't playing. Mm. <laughs> there was some sources they weren't eliminating. Right. To be really precise, what we now know is that the variabilities of iodine in tests can be reduced by calibrating iodine against creatinine. So there's a test called a urinary iodine to creatinine ratio, Now, it's not adequate to gauge a person's iodine nutritional status, but it is adequate to partition an individual on a spectrum to say whether they're at positive iodine balance, meaning their net iodine levels are increasing, negative iodine balance, meaning that they're at an effective iodine detox, or neutral balance, meaning they're just breaking even. So urinary iodine to creatinine ratios that are below 100 correspond with being at a effective iodine detox.
1: Is there anything else, Dr. C, in thinking about the fact that you have the ears of many clinicians who are looking to help their clients and patients that you want us to know? about iodine that you found with this new research?
0: A couple of quick points. Yeah. I guess the biggest thing is just that recovery is possible. If your clients are on third medications, please have them test within a month after starting because they may not need the same dosages. And then also, I guess I've seen many people do different diets and say that their thyroid got better. And I think this might be a common thread. Hmm. You know, I I did a I did a, a menu based upon most popular menu items for an autoimmune paleo diet. I did a full day's menu. And then I took my databases I generated and took the food quantities and found that the typical AIP diet would yield about 60 to 70 micrograms of iodine per day, which is on target for this. Also, vegan diets can yield similar amounts. Uh, standard American diets can range from three, 300 to 700 per day based on the range of their sources. So a lot of different diets that could seem contradictory, a common thread is they may be regulating iodine.
1: I always love when that happens because it really demystifies this one size fits all or what it is that we're looking for in some theory and brings it down to these common threads that reveal so much more about the juiciness of the diet that we're looking for. (laughs) Dr. C., thank you again and again for the research you continue to do and the work you do to illuminate the ways in which we can personally and professionally help to reverse thyroid disease.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. And good to have a chance to hang out with you, Andrea.
1: The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who do you'd like to hear on the podcast? You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.